bum bum bottom 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 bum
her tackling another character. I again, re- like Bendis going over to DC. Yeah, uh, and again, I say she could have used she could use a change of pace. Mm. As much as I love Ms. Marvel, particularly um, the first two volumes, I feel like she put limitations on Ms. Marvel as a character that I think another writer may not necessarily respect. Because I feel like she had this thing where Ms. Marvel can't really hurt or kill any anything alive. You know what I mean? So a lot of those volume three and and in more deeper into the Ms. Marvel character, she is just fighting robot after robot, which can get kind of tiring after a while. So maybe with um, Diana at the tip of her pen, maybe I'll get to see a little bit more G. Willow Wilson directed violence. And then maybe who's taking over Ms. Marvel? Uh, the guy who's doing uh, Spider-Man. That's that's right. So maybe, um, you know, he'll let Ms. Marvel get in, get scrappy. But what about that parakeet head guy? I like that. That was great. Yeah. I, the, what was his name? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, but he was more of those, one of those um, mad genius types and, uh, and maker of robots. Great design. Yeah. Killer design. Uh, so while you've been reading that, I've been catching up on the Uncanny X-Men, the Matthew Rosenberg run. Um, the the age of X-Men is coming. It's the next big event. Uh, and uh, the latest issue was a big hint of how they're going to r- revert. Is that the right word? Or subvert, maybe, uh, the age of apocalypse alternate reality to become the age of Nate Gray. So it's 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 big, silly, uh, reality altering comic books, but a lot of fun. A lot of characters going on right now in Uncanny X Men. I, I think that's sometimes where I get lost. You love seeing like, oh, there's Beast and there's Angel, of course, yeah, and that's all well and good. But then there's like there's Armor and then there's Nightcrawler and then there's Goop, and you're just like, there's so many people. Yeah. It's overwhelming sometimes. I get that. Uh, so I think that's why I, I, I tend to fall off of the X-Men books after a period of time. But we'll see. I, I, I Like I said, I was a sucker for the Age of Apocalypse storyline back in the day. And I sort of love the idea of twisting that reality around to a place where Nate Gray is supreme. So I don't know. I'm, I'm on board. It's The comics are coming out at a weekly pace, so that requires multiple artists to jump on and off. And I know how much you issue. love that, being sarcastic. Ugh, ugh, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I get it. It's just the way the business works, but sometimes it's really frustrating. Yeah. I'll shut up about that, Lisa. I'll uh, stop bringing that complaint to you all the time. I am here to receive your complaints and gripes. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm loving life. I'm loving comic books. I've got a little bit of a cold. That's the State of the Union. Yep. Shall we get into Saga? Let's do this thing. So as we said last week, rather than jumping around the entire run of Saga, we are going to stick to it volume to volume. So we read volume one last week. We're doing volume two this week. That means issues seven through 12. And I love Love this volume. Yeah, me too. A lot of it is told in flashback. As you might remember, at the end of the last volume, Marco and Alana's wooden rocket ship was invaded by Marco's parents. 
And rather than jumping right into that argument, this story picks up many years ago when Marco was just a boy. Uh, his parents have taken to the site of the last battle on Wreath. Their wars are, they're, not, they're now fought off in far off planets so that the rich muckety mucks uh, can uh, hate in comfort. The parents cast a spell and they are able to bring forth a vision of a violent bloodbath. Marco, he just wants to enjoy life, but his folks want to prepare him for the horrors of war. So yeah, uh, basic good parenting, right, Lisa? (laughs) I suppose they definitely want to impress upon him first the appreciation for the the blood of his ancestors who fought so that he could live on wreath and also instill in him the hate of the winged people. Yeah. Uh, So we flash back to the wooden rocket ship and the parents and child are arguing because Mama Clara there, uh, Marco's uh, mother, has banished Isabel to a distant comet. And uh, rather than abandoning her, Marco puts on this nifty teleport helmet and goes after her. It's called a crash helm. A crash helm. Thank you, Lisa, for your notes. Uh, And uh, Clara follows... um, Marco to the comet, leaving Papa Barr and his new granddaughter and daughter-in-law to uh, deal with each other. He basically gets to work spinning clothes for them and armor, and uh, he, he becomes like a really, like, take charge, like, I'm going to fix this situation right now. Right. And there's a reason, because he's about to shuffle off this mortal coil. That's right. So this this story is really dealing with kind of four relationships. So there is the flashback to early, those first few days of Alana's and Marco's relationship. We get a little glimpse at their meet cute as Alana is guarding Marco on Cleve. Then we also have the storyline of Marco and his mother trying to get Isabel back. And then the storyline with Alana and Barr and how they start from a very distrustful place. But by Barr opening up about his bad heart and that he only has so much time left to live, um, they find a place of real understanding and mutual appreciation and admiration. So we see all of those kinds of relationships weave together until we get to the point at the end of the comic where Barr has passed away and Marco asks Alana to leave the room so that he can be with his parents. Right. So that's what we're going to be focusing our conversation on. But there is also the storyline involving the Will partnering up with Gwendolyn. We get to meet Gwendolyn, Marco's fiance. And of course, a total babe. Who would expect any less for Marco? Yeah. So they partner up to free the slave girl from Sextillion. And then there's the other storyline of Prince Robot 4 still in pursuit of Marco and Alana. But we also get a little more insight into his PTSD from the war that he has experienced. Absolutely. And he is determined that the happy couple have fled to Quietus, where novelist D. Oswald Heist resides. Right. And we get to see a little insight into the interrogation tactics of the royal whatever. family yeah. Oh, yeah not not uh not friendly not friendly at all <laughs> um and then we see that the entire time this interrogation is happening 
our our family now extended family included with Clara are downstairs hiding in the basement. Yes. And that's how we end this volume. So that's the basic plot of Saga Volume 2. Lisa, we are applying John Gray's most excellent self-help book, <laughs> Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, to this arc of stories. How are we going to do that today? Since Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus has chapters to address each of the kinds of conflicts that men and women in relationships find themselves in, I'm going to choose a different chapter for each volume and then use that chapter to analyze Marco and Alana's relationships and how they communicate with others. So um, just a quick review, John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, poses the theory that men and women are so different that they cannot relate to each other hardly at all. It's as if they're on, they're from different planets. We'll see in our discussion of volume two that while Marco and Alana are from different planets, they actually find a lot of common ground, which allows them to fall in love and have unprotected sex about and conceive Hazel. We, of course, know better. John Gray's entire theory is based on ridiculous stereotypes that are built upon socially normalized oppression. There is no way you can describe all men as this and all women as that. You can't even put all people into cleanly into the genders of men and women. Gender is a spectrum, and every person is a rainbow of unique attributes, all of which... Demand to be loved in a different way. Yeah, he uh, John Gray is basically doing the Tim the Toolman Taylor uh, uh, conversation here. Exactly. Um, but the chapter we're going to be trying to apply to this volume is chapter eight, discovering our different emotional needs. The emotional needs of men versus the emotional needs of women. John Gray ascribes six different emotional needs, the 12 kinds of love, to each of the genders. So, I can't wait. So the emotional needs of women are, according to John Gray, <laughs> PhD, How with a huge asterisks? question mark after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many asterisks. Um, so the emotional needs of women are caring, understanding, respect, devotion, validation and reassurance and the emotional needs of men are trust acceptance appreciation admiration approval and encouragement so and he says that each of these needs is reciprocal so if you treat a woman with caring she in turn will trust you or if you treat a man with (laughs) acceptance he will go out of his way to be more understanding. So John Gray does say, yeah, you can apply each of these emotional needs to men or to women, but women will not be able to express their love or appreciate the other types of love until you've kind of ticked off all of her emotional needs boxes. And the same with men. That's kind of interesting, Lisa, because... um seems like a lot of that responsibility falls onto the woman to behave. Exactly. Like if you take a look at the paired emotional needs of validation for women 
and approval for men. On their face, they look like they are the same thing. But validation, when you need validation, that is comes from a place of I'm not sure if I'm valid. Right, right. Where approval comes from a place of you need to see me for how great I am. Or the paired emotional needs of reassurance for women and encouragement for men. Women need to hear, it's okay for you to continue doing what you're doing. While men need like a, you're a champion, just keep going. It's the cliche of submissive versus dominant. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And okay. And we're still marching ahead. Uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> we're still using this book. Um, John Gray's number one pet peeve uh, between men and women is that men never want unsolicited advice ever. When a man is losing his confidence because he is screwing up or he's struggling in one way or another, a woman should never give him any kind of advice because any kind of advice would emasculate and defeat him. And he uses a little story that he calls the knight in shining armor. Like every man needs to see himself as a knight in shining armor. So the story starts with this knight. um, Here's a woman scream in distress. And he, he gallops over there and he sees that she is being trapped by a dragon. So um, he pulls out his sword And he slays that dragon. Uh, But then um, the next time a dragon comes to to attack his damsel, while he's fighting the dragon, he's struggling. He doesn't see why the sword isn't working. (laughs) So she cries out and she goes, hey, just try the noose. (laughs) So he tries the noose and the noose works and the dragon is slain. And everybody's like, hooray, go knight. But he doesn't feel as proud <laughs> of slaying the dragon because he had to take this woman's advice. But what if he had been eaten? I know. But then, again, his damsel gets another dragon. She must be very attractive Ooh. to dragons. And um, this time she's like, uh, you know, he has the news because he he told right, she right, told right. him to bring the noose. But now he's got a noose and a sword and he gets confused. He's like, should I use the sword? Should I use the noose? I'm no longer confident. And she's like, try the poison. So <laughs> he she tosses him down some poison and he uses it. The dragon is slain. And uh, he feels even though he's being congratulated on slaying the dragon, he feels awful because now oh. he's hesitated and oh. he feels like his woman had to come in. Mm. And so then one day, um, he hears another damsel, a different damsel, oh, screaming no. for in distress, and she's being attacked by a dragon, and he pulls out his sword, slays that dragon. That woman had nothing to suggest, so now the knight leaves the damsel who had the bright ideas of the noose and the poison, and now he's left her, and now he's with this new damsel because she didn't make any suggestions. What? I know. What? I know. And the Gross. thing is- men are not really allowed to give advice to women either because when women well, are upset, <laughs> when women are upset, <laughs> they want to be understood. And if you're making suggestions, then she doesn't feel like you're trying to understand her feelings. You're trying to fix 
the yeah, problem yeah. instead. My da- that's one of the, the first lessons my dad taught me when I got married. He's like, now when she gets upset, Brad, when Lisa gets upset, she just wants you to listen. Don't try to solve everything. Of course your father told you that. That is the cliche that women just want to be heard and understood. And John Gray says that even if you find your woman crazy and you don't understand her emotions at all, you should still pretend to understand and pretend to listen so that will make her feel loved. But I find (laughs) that there are times when you are receptive to suggestions and when you're not receptive to suggestions. Yeah, when I'm pouty. Yeah. When when I get mad, I, I go into silent mode. Yeah. Uh, or if I get extremely stressed, I do. I mean, I do do that like caveman shutdown. And John Gray does talk about that, that men are men when they're upset, go into their cave. And when women yeah. where when they're upset, prefer to talk it out. Yeah. And you you definitely and, do like to talk it out. And that is true in our relationship. And you that poke was the bear. That is, I do, I do poke the bear <laughs> when you're in pouty mode. But there is a time when you do just want to talk it out, and you come to me, and I have to recognize that as: is this him coming to me for advice, or is this him coming to me for talk it out? And there are times when I get so upset, you know. There, I have told yeah, you, it's yeah. few, but and far between. But where I say I'm upset about this and not ready to talk about it, yeah, and then. When I'm ready, I come out and I spill my guts and you go, is this a time to to listen or is this a time yeah. to... So that, for us, that does work to a certain degree, but you have to be able to tell whether you're dealing with a man or with a woman, are they venting or are they asking for advice? And those are two very different conversations where if you mix them up, people do feel slighted by it. But I don't think that it's necessarily a man thing or a woman thing. I think it may be an introvert thing, extrovert thing. It might be um, the kind of stress that you're dealing with. Yeah. So I, I don't think that that's something that cleanly goes, all men are like this and all women are like that. Just think about it. When you hear John Gray's theory of men want to cave while women want to vent, you go, on the surface, yeah, that's true. I do like to cave. Yeah. And my wife does like to vent. Yeah. But there are times when you've said that your cave mm. tendencies are a learned behavior that you got for mm. your mother. And when yeah, you think yeah, about yeah. your parents, your mom is the caver and your dad is the venter. No, that's totally true. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when my mom got mad, she does what I do, retreats, and does not want to talk to anybody. And so did my mom a lot. I, I interpreted as a as a child, but there were times when she would definitely vent too. So um, the way I'm going to apply this idea of different emotional needs to volume two is as I was reading, I tried to find those moments within the book where I saw someone either seeking or giving the emotional needs to another character. So sometimes... It's the emotional needs between Alana and Marco, but there's a lot of exchange of emotional needs between Alana and Barr in this particular volume. And there's also a lot of times between um, Clara and Marco where Clara is withholding of emotional needs and Marco is seeking of emotional needs. Yeah, true, true. So we'll see how Mm. it goes 
when we enter our actual session part of this discussion. Okay. Where do we want to start? I think we should just go ahead and start with chapter seven, with the very first issue. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Because the beginning is a very good place to start. Well, I understand the real meat of what happens in this second volume starts with chapter eight and the meet cute of Marco and Alana. (laughs) Uh I feel like this first chapter of this volume really gives you a background on where Marco is coming from and how he context for how he comes to his ideological turn. It also sets up the tragedy of the last issue of this volume quite well. Right. And the kind of growing relationship between Alana and Barr. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But these are also the last moments that Barr can affect or have an impact on the life of his son and now his granddaughter. Yeah, and we see this kind of clarification of priorities. Yeah. Which I think is actually really beautiful, especially considering how Marco was raised. Right, yes, yeah. So um, chapter seven starts with that flashback to Marco's childhood where his parents, you know, hit magic replay on this battle, on this last battle of Wreath. And as we were saying in the you know, plot synopsis, it is this dark moment where you're like, oh my God, these parents, like, what, what are they instilling this hatred onto their child? But it's also a marker of where they were then because they're, the both Barr and Clara have growth over these six issues. And the Barr and Clara that end this arc are not the Barr and Clara that begin it in that flashback. Well, because I think they were raising their child defensively. I think they were saying, we're in this war. Wreath is a tiny place full of our people, and we need to keep it safe. And the way that we keep it safe is we foster this hatred toward the people from Landfall. Right. And then we see defensiveness again reflected in Alana, because when... Alana and Barr are left alone. The first thing she does is turn the ship on him. So he gets all wrapped up in vines so so that they're not so that she's not going to be harmed by him. She's she doesn't know where he's coming from. And she has Hazel now. And the yeah, last don't she- come at me. This is my house. Don't forget. This is my house. And then rocket ship traps him. Exactly. And she gets the upper hand. And of course. You know, going back to this idea of, um, you know, keeping secrets between loved ones, how does he get out of that? Just like Marco gets out of his bind in the first volume, uh, Barr admits to her, look, I'm dying. No one else knows. And now because he reveals this secret, he's able to free himself from the vines. But also that secret bonds Alana and Barr in a way that he's not even uh, attached to his wife and his son. Yeah, it really endears her to him, even though right after he gets, he uses the secret to finish the incantation that frees him from the vines. The first thing he does is sedate Alana. Yeah, but he's already smitten with her because he looks into the eyes of that it, that child. Now he knows its name is Hazel, and that's a beautiful goddamn name. That is a beautiful goddamn name. (laughs) So that's chapter seven. So now chapter eight, chapter eight opens with that beautiful picture of Alana 
sitting on the edge of, I guess, some kind of aircraft, blowing bubblegum and reading a nighttime smoke. Uh, I mean, this issue is so good. And, and not, not only does it open with that image, but it actually opens with the book itself, right? The page, the writing of this romance. And it is so inexplicably mundane. It's boring. It's so boring. And of course, Alana's response to this is holy fucking shit. <laughs> because she's lived her entire life where there's always this war and this chaos going on. Right. And here is a book where love can be found on the couch, where it's in the littlest least exciting actions that one person delivers to another where true romance is found. Right. And she's smitten. Absolutely. And so like just how, how chapter seven gave us some context for Marco's ideological change. Here we are at the impetus of Alana's ideological change. And she can't shut up about it. She's so excited. <laughs> so she takes the book and she's just looking for someone to share it with. And she tries to share it with Lance Corporal McHen McHenry, who we see in the previous volume, who didn't read it. And the first thing she does is turn it over to Prince Robot 4 as evidence. Well, that's because Alana is the most annoying co-worker ever, pestering her with all this uh, blather about this dumb romance book. No one in her company, including that weird slug thing in the jar, uh, can stand being with her on guard duty because she cannot shut up about how great this novel is. I, I love that about her character because we have this like little brain thing who's like, what you said. And then um, we have Agent Gale in the previous book going like, she was really seen as dim-witted and impulsive and a little bit of a whore. Like nobody <laughs> likes Alana, which yeah. I think is a beautiful context because we as a reader love her sure, so much. Sure. And but so to find out that she's just hated and disrespected everywhere she goes. Well, I, my mind. I think back to my retail days, right, where I'll go watch a movie and I'll fall in love. And all I want to talk about is how great the Dark Knight Rises is. And everyone's like, oh, my God, Brad, shut up about the Dark Knight Rises. It's nowhere near as good as the, C the, the second film. Give me a break. Man, what a whore Brad is. No, you were universally well-liked <laughs> at Barnes & Noble. That's yeah. why I found you so attractive, because you were always the center of, like, social events. I don't know where to go with that. It's just the truth. <laughs> um, talking about that's how we fall in love. So let's talk about how Alana and Marco fall in love when she comes to... Um, check on apparently he's like making a real racket in his jail cell and they're and they're afraid that maybe he's doing some kind of spell or they can't understand his language right he's speaking like a crazy person to them so alana is like okay lance corporal mchenry if you promise to at least start this book i'll go take care of this and so she grabs her sidearm or whatever her big rifle thingy i don't know I don't know guns. And um, she <laughs> goes works. She goes to see Marco and he is trying to speak to her in his language. And for some reason, for a moment, she's desperate to hear him. She like really tries to hear and understand him. And I love the 
image that Fiona Staples does before they start to communicate where Hazel's narration connects the eyeline of Mm -hmm. Marco and Alana. This is how my parents met. And that sets you up to thinking, oh, this is going to be a real beautiful moment. Right. But in a true Brian K. Vaughn, Fiona Staples kind of way, you turn the page and Alana drives the butt of her rifle into Marco's face. Yep. I said no talking. And then Hazel goes, this is what they used to say uh, in romantic comedies. They call this a meat cue. <laughs> yep. But Marco is really just begging for peace. Yes. So by this point, he's gone full pacifist. And in doing so, gets himself arrested. Now, Marco gets on Alana's good side pretty quickly after receiving a smash to the noggin. Because the next time we return to this flashback in Chapter 10, we see that Alana has been stationed to guard... Uh, I guess Marco is what he's, um, he's on a chain, rocks. he's yeah. on a chain gang. Yeah, he's building but, a railroad, but he's a chain gang of one because he's not connected to anybody else. Yeah. I, well, he has like this kind of ball and chain on his ankle. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that they're still using prisoners to make railroads <laughs> in this apocalyptic yeah, distance yeah, yeah. present. So I don't he, know what the he, timeline he, is. You see him on that first page on chapter 10. Talk about a splash page. Yum, yum, yum. Well, what is it, Lisa? It's Marco with the sledgehammer slung over his shoulders. He has those little, I don't know what they're called, the hip dips. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hip dips. Those hip dips make me uncomfortable. He's ripped like Jesus, and he is saying the sexiest word ever. Please keep reading. And Alana's guarding him, but her rifle. He looks like he's wearing Toms. Look at those shoes. I mean, they're great. Toms are the shoe of the future. They're pretty great shoes. So the rifle's by her side. She's got her book out, and she is reading to him the adventures of D. Oswald Heist's novel. So she reads to him another boring chunk of this mundane novel, and he just lights up and he says, I don't understand. It's like it was written for me. And. If we go back to our men are from Mars, women are from Venus, like primary love needs for women, the need to feel understood is like a huge thing. So the fact that he's listening to this thing and saying, not only do you do I hear you read it to me, but I'm getting from this all of the value that you got from this and That is the moment that they fall in love. This is what they fall in love over. Because they're both seeking this larger. They're both in this moment, this moment of an ideological about face. Everywhere around them is about war. They don't want to be about war anymore. And they find each other in this juxtaposition and it just bonds them. So we think about these primary love needs being reciprocal, right? So he is giving her understanding. So she reciprocates with trust because in that moment he goes, well, you know, I'm being transferred to some other prison, the prison that people don't come back from. And in hearing that she busts his chain. And yeah, she, she can't stand free. the idea of this being who has heard me on my level and is, and is getting the same amount of joy and affirmation from this book is just going to now be wasted in a prison sentence. Right. Or really a death sentence. So she breaks him free. They have their first kiss. 
which is absolutely beautiful. And they run away together. Now let's again jump to another chapter, chapter 11, and another gorgeous splash page. Yum, yum. (laughs) Here are Marco and Alana uh, entwined in coitus. And I guess this is actually the conception of Hazel. We get to see the the beginning of our story right here. This is the idea coming to life. Right. I love Hazel's response to this because you just turn the page and it says, yeah, yeah, So my mom and dad used to have sex. What? Like your parents just willed you into existence? (laughs) I I just think that's cute. I don't think my parents willed me into existence, but I'm pretty sure I was not conceived sitting up like this. That takes some core strength right there. I don't want to think about Leo and Dottie that way. (laughs) Stop it, Lisa. I was conceived missionary position with all of the enthusiasm of um, whatever. (laughs) Gross, gross, gross. (laughs) No Uh, enthusiasm at all. Very business-like. Back to Hazel. Back to Hazel. I'm sorry. I I do love this idea that Hazel is conceived in a true moment of passion. Right. Uh, You know, they're not wearing protection. Uh, He he was going to pull out, I guess, but uh, Alana said something even more profane. Just, you know, (laughs) shoot it in me. And he obeyed. Yeah, he did. I love um, the fact that he's like self, so self-congratulatory after after the act. He's like, that was great. Let's high five. And she's like, Immediately yeah, goes gr- into terror mode. Regret mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a dude. And, you know, dudes don't think about consequence, Lisa. But I do think he is thinking about consequence because when they start arguing with like, you know, like, Oh, why did you come inside me? Like, this is no situation to raise a child. And he starts to talk about the child as the symbol of their two of their two worlds coming together. Like, that's so impossible. And yet here they are so passionately in love. And we got a sense of that in the first volume where, he, you know, this this creation, you know, Hazel for him is very much a symbol as well as his daughter. Right. Right. Just like he was a a symbol for his parents, I suppose, like this carrying on of wreathness, but their argument ends like so many of their arguments in these first two volumes, like with a no kind of resolution, just like a change of subject. So Alana is going on about like, you know, when we're making love, like having kids with you, makes uh, makes all the sense in the world but you know when we look around like we should not be raising children like like how how would you envision your child in this in this madness and he goes well i always imagined that my my child would be na- my son would be named bar and she's just <laughs> like what bar <laughs> and then again we get some hazel narration saying from that point forward mother just prayed that the that the child was a girl. Right, right. Because, of course, she lies. She's like, oh, I love that name. <laughs> but I, that moment, I think, is really valuable within the context of the greater volume because we see over Barr's storyline that he feels like he was kind of an absentee father for Marco and that he did not give our Marco everything he could as a father. And the situation that Marco is now in is a direct result of his bad parenting. So he really feels like Marco can't love him the way he wants his son to love him. And I think the fact that he 
would desire his son to be named Bar is a sign that he really did love his father. True. And if we skip ahead a little bit further towards the end of this volume, when Bar finally perishes, at that moment, Marco flashes back again to his youth and he's writing that crazy grasshopper thing. And, you know, at his father's death, his last thoughts are of what a tremendous bond they had. And he wants that to continue with his daughter. But that moment of love for his dying dad sort of alienates his relationship with Alana. He pushes Alana aside in those last moments. Right, right. Well, I think he, that memory he has, if we're going back to those primary love language, I don't want to say love languages, let's not mix up our experts, his (laughs) primary love needs. His father in that moment with the grasshopper, Gave him encouragement, which is number six uh, of the primary love needs for men. So so I think that the standoff way of parenting him communicated to him acceptance and trust mm. and all of those things that helped him feel loved by his dad that he didn't necessarily feel from his mother. Cause we see in these scenes with Clara, she's very judgmental. She's second guessing every decision he's made in his life. So I think that, that he had a closeness with his father that even his father didn't quite understand. So in seeing the inception of Hazel, we are now caught up on the origins of Marco and Alana's relationship. Now let's go back. Before we go on. Mm. We do see in this argument a pattern of behavior that I think we'll see come up later as an impetus for them to have more conflict, that in an argument, Alana begs to be understood Mm, and uh, Marco doesn't necessarily feel trusted by Alana because she has her own way of doing things. They're not completely aligned ideologically. Well, again, as we've said on this episode and as we said on the episode before, these two really don't know each other. And if this baby had not been born, I do not think they would have stuck it out after their escape from Cleve. That's probably true. But I do want to point out, like, going against the grain, going against expectations that maybe John Gray would think... Marco really is the emotional one in this relationship. And Alana is much more practical. So even though he can go fix it, Mr. Fix it mode, and she can go Mr. Fix it mode, he really is the emotional center of the family. So now we're all caught up on the origins of Marco and Alana's relationship. Don't worry. I'll find a reason to interrupt you later. (laughs) Well, let's go back to uh, the the pairing off of Marco and Clara and Alana and Barr. Absolutely. Sure. We have to talk about Fard. <laughs> yes, Fard. So- he is remarkable. <laughs> we must remark upon him. So when uh, Marco dons the crash helm and goes after Isabel, he's teleported to this alien world, Clara goes after him, and the first beast they encounter is this giant cyclops in all his nude glory. And And all his crusty scrotum. It's so disgusting. His penis looks 
like a green olive with like the pimento and everything. <laughs> so nasty. Yeah. So this beast, he just keeps saying fart over and over and again. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to battle it, take it down. And Clara wants to kill the creature because it's an enemy. And that's what you do to your enemies. And Marco, the pacifist, he wants to communicate. And he's got the translator ring that he's stolen off of his fiance, Gwendolyn. Mm-hmm. And Clara certainly points that out. Right. And there's a little bit of a scuffle there, a little, not a scuffle, but a, a debate. And he's like, look, mom, I just want to talk to this thing. Let's find out what's going on. Maybe it can help us find Isabel. And what you learn is, look, guys, you haven't landed on a planet. You've landed on an egg and it's about to hatch and a space god is about to be born. Yeah. And in that moment, of course, Clara, overly critical, not trusting what of his a mob. methods, calls him squeamish. Marco <laughs> is not feeling loved in that moment. So they're quickly scouring this planet before it hatches and the creatures that they encounter after Fard are three Macbeth witches with upside down heads. And uh, it looks like they're going to be, you know, uh, devastated by these magical beings. And then suddenly here comes Isabel in a form of a flaming gorilla who loves the middle finger. Yeah, that's right. Flee in terror, bitches. <laughs> and Isabel saves them. And now you have this really fun dynamic between Clara and Isabel. Isabel, not at all pleased with Clara. Nope. Nope. She's the old crone who's sent her to the dump. <laughs> but they crash Helm back to the rocket ship yep. and reunite with Alana and Barr, who have gone through their own uh, cycle of growth in this, the time between. Yeah, they fall in love a little bit. They fall into family. Yeah, a little too late, though, because Barr's about to kick it. Yeah. So where did we leave off with Barr and Alana? Bar had just told Alana he's about to die and then sedated her. And now he's busy at work at the stitching machine. Yeah, she wakes up and has a really wonderful new outfit. Love language gifts. Gifts, yes. And Hazel has a nice little uh, orange tunic that she's all cuddled up into. Right. So if we go back to those primary emotional needs, the very first emotional need of women is caring. And thinking about Barr being an armorer and giving her an outfit that will deflect bullets. Yeah, pretty rad. Shows that he cares. Yeah, and will one day be turned into a bookmark for Hazel. That's true. So sad. Super sad. And of course, Alana reciprocates that caring with trust. And that trust leads to this really beautiful conversation about what Alana loves about Marco. And she lays out like all of her annoyances with him, which I think are key because the things that you find when you're infatuated with someone, the little faults that you find cute when you've been together for a while can be grating. Oh no. (laughs) What are you talking about, Lisa? What are you referring to? I'm talking about us. Our relationship is perfect, Mm. but she's all like, he's self-righteous he is, he can't st- sit still. He laughs at his own jokes. And she's like, he's like, well, why, why do you risk so much to be with him? And she responds, because he's so goddamn beautiful. And of course, she's not talking about his looks. 
while all of that is going down and Barr is passing away, the Will and Gwendolyn encounter the hatchling in space. Uh, their ship is severely damaged. Lion Cat blows out the side of the ship. The Will has to go and retrieve Lion Cat. And when he's out there in the deep space, he actually puts his eyes on the rocket ship that they have been pursuing. So they know they're close to capturing Marco and Alana. And they know that because Slave Girl has um, has some kind of extra Psychic sensory rapport. perception. Yeah, not quite Jean Grey, but getting there. Yeah, so Gwendolyn has the pendant that's a match set with the two rings, and somehow Slave Girl gets a sense that the rings are close right. from the pendant. And okay. Blah, so blah, blah, blah. Magic. Then the final issue of Volume 2 is the Prince Robot 4 issue. Right. He lands on Quietus, and he meets... Who, Lisa? Goose. Goose. The most adorable, well-marketed little friend. He's like a little seal, but he's wearing overalls, and he has a walrus that is like a, like a friend, too. He's got legs. I'm pretty sure Goose was designed by Fiona Staples to capture the heartstrings of Lisa here. Yeah, I have... I got the Comic-Con exclusive stuffed goose <laughs> from the Image Comic booth. So he has the overalls that you see him wear here, but he also has the hat and the little galoshies. He's adorable. He sits on our couch with us. So cute. Next to our lion cat. Yeah. Um, now, Goose points Prince Robot in the direction of Oswald's lighthouse. And apparently a lot of people have... He's directed a lot of people to the White House because many people have come seeking out this. Yeah, but fewer guy. and fewer over time. Yeah. Uh, so the, the and the majority of this issue is a conversation interrogation between uh, villain and artist. Yeah. We learn that Oswald wrote a nighttime smoke as a response to his. Uh, soldier's son suicide. He killed himself when he came back from the war and was presumably suffering the same kind of PTSD that Prince Robot is currently suffering. Right, because he saw a mousy explode. Oh, God. That is... So gross. So gross. And one of many horrible sequences that we encounter over the course of Saga's uh, continuity. It's heartbreaking. It really, really, really is. Uh, so we end on a cliffhanger of Prince Robot saying, well, I'm going to stay in this lighthouse and wait until Marco and Alana walk through that door. But dun, dun, dun. Marco, Alana, Clara, Isabel are already upstairs in the attic of the lighthouse. Uh, they had made it to quietus before Prince Robot. Robot. Yep. I love the little quote that Prince Robot reads straight from the book, because depending on your mindset, you can find this quote comforting, but you can also find it menacing. And the quote he reads is, never worry what other people think of you, because no one ever thinks of you. Yeah. Uh, accurate, nihilistic, and uh, totally brutal. Yep. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Volume two done. So, sweetie. Yes. What about this origins of Marco and Alana's relationship? What about their relationship in this volume should we bring into our relationship? What have we learned? 
well, to be honest, it's really hard to compare and analyze the relationship of Marco and Alana at this point to our own because they're so new. They're yeah, so fresh. They're, they're new. They're, this is a fresh romance despite the presence of a baby. And we're, you know, old, uh, we're old hags, Lisa. Well, I'm an old <laughs> hag and, and you're uh, a, a wizened, beautiful, uh, mature lady. Okay, that's fine. I did find, <laughs> I don't know, because part of me like wants to defy the ageism and be like, I don't care what my age is, but at the same time, I'm still young and beautiful. You are young and beautiful, and I backed myself into a word corner. Yeah, you did. But let's just move past it. It never happened. Um, I do fi- did find some resonance with the idea that their relationship came from a time where they just so happened to ideologically align. Mm. Because I feel like when you and I first got together, I had just discovered pendulette and skepticism. And I found myself in doing an about face from the way I was raised. And I was so jazzed by all of this stuff I was getting through podcasts and and um, listening to the radio, and and I was ready to share this kind of skepticism. Yeah, and you were opening up to a variety of art, and I think that's one of the things that we originally connected to was all of these films I wanted to ramble on about, all these comic books I wanted to ramble about, and suddenly I found a lady who was actually interested in all the dumb stuff that I was interested Not in. Not actually just interested but genuinely, like, I hadn't been exposed to it. I was raised in such a way where a lot of different genres of movies I just straight up wasn't exposed to. So while we did not necessarily bond over one particular book like Marco and Alana do, we did sort of bond over art in general. Yeah. Yeah, and just think, like, comic books. I wouldn't be this into comic books if it wasn't for you. True, I had, yeah. I had read uh, Watchmen. you like every college kid. Right? I had read all of Sandman. Uh, I still haven't even read Sandman, Lisa. I would be interested to read it again because it's it's been a long time. I remember it being um, dreamlike <laughs> and weird. <laughs> Like, I still like the way that Neil Gaiman writes. I'm a little intimidated by its classic status. You know, it's like Citizen Kane of comic books. But it is also like the thing that the emo girl with too much eyeliner on reads. (laughs) Like, how seriously can you take it? Hmm, No comment. So Saga Volume 2 comes to an end, and I feel like we have put a chapter of exposition behind us. Yeah. The setup is done. Now we are rocking and rolling with the present. So Brad, next week, we're just picking up right where we left off. Yes. Volume three, which is to say issues 13 through 18 of Saga is what we will be tackling. So before we do our usual close out, we just wanted to take a moment to shout out some of our listeners that we have been interacting with and getting so much affirmation or should I say since I am a woman using women are from Venus terminology so much validation Mm. we really appreciate it so who do we want to shout out 
Give me some handles. At Implausible17 had some nice words of affirmation for us. Uh, Sarah Harris, she says, It has taken me a while, busy time of year, but I've finally started listening to you guys adorably dissect Scott and Jean and their respective love tanks. Uh, and then she trademarks it. <laughs> I'm a couple of episodes in and thoroughly enjoying it so far. Thank Yay, you. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. We really appreciate you chiming in and letting us know how we're doing. We've had a lot of really rewarding back and forth with Brody J. Thornton at Hawksmore One. One of her beautiful tweets says... Moments ago, I finished the first Saga CBCC podcast, as I expected, very fun, very intuitive, and very satisfying. Keep up the great work, guys. Damn, you folks are good. And that's how she wrote it. Like, damn is in all caps, and look at all those O's. <laughs> I appreciate a good damn. I feel so fulfilled right now. I mean, that's, that's, I'm genuinely like, I really, really am appreciative to anybody who listens to us and who responds so positively. I mean, it, you guys are making our nights with each of your tweets. Yeah. And finally, from Andrew Wilson at Arcanity23, uh, he's responding to our uh, discussion about Mr. Miracle and Big Barda. Great conversation of my fave superhero couple. To me, issue six is the moans of the damned issue, referring to how I called it the sex issue. And, Lisa and I called, called it, it the Descartes issue. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, reminds me of what I liked about Kirby's Mr. Miracle. It has the creative madness to look at the darkest, bleakest part of mythology and think it would make a perfect love story. Yay. That, I mean, that's a wonderful point. And as 2018 concluded, it was also really great to see so much love being thrown towards the Tom King and Mitch Jared story. It truly is one of the best comic book series of last year. Hands down. And, you know, they just put out a new issue of Batman together. I haven't read it yet, but I can't wait. Yay. Okay, let's end the show, Lisa. All right, Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. And Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. Don't forget about our email. Send your thoughts to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. And we are always accepting the gift of five stars. Five stars and, only. And five stars only. And a kind review on iTunes. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. <laughs>